Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily and my name is Matthew Aaron. Today, we got a good show for you. Listener questions and we have a polka dot 101. What is this polka dot thing? That is in the number six market cap of all the cryptocurrency. That and other news coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. Good morning, everyone. Today is Friday, March 5th, 2021. Let's just get right into those crypto prices because we have listener questions and we have a great conversation coming up. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. I'm recording this at 1130 Eastern Standard Time. Let's take a look at those top five coins. Coming in at number one, it's Bitcoin at $47,818.53, down 3.7% in 24 hours. Ethereum is at $1,475, down about 6.6% in 24 hours. Cardano, $1.16. It's up about a percent in 24 hours. At the number four spot is Tether. Number five spot is Binance at 222 54. It's down around 6.8% in 24 hours. And Polkadot's in the number 6 spot at 3282, down around 8.6% in 24 hours. <laughs> it's bloody out there, y'all, but don't panic. It's just a skin knee. Put a band-aid on it, disinfect, get back in the game. Total market cap, $1.495 trillion, with a BTC dominance, 59.6%. And now let's get into some listener questions. First question today, we have a question from Hugh Rogers. And Hugh asks, how safe from fraud or failure are stablecoins like USDT? Hugh, thank you very much for that question. When it comes to the USDT or USDC or BUSD, supposedly, hopefully, they are backing that one-to-one with the dollar. So if you put $1 into a stablecoin, they then mint one stablecoin or $1 worth of the stablecoin or the cryptocurrency. So if I put $100 in, they have 100 USDT or 100 BUSD. If I put $200 in, they have 200 BUSD and so on and so forth. So if they're doing everything properly, the stablecoin is backed by the dollar or the Canadian dollar or whatever the stablecoin is pegged to. USDT, USDC, BUSD, and so on and so forth are pegged to the dollar. So the question actually is, how safe from fraud or failure are they? Well, that's all about transparency. Are they allowing third-party companies to audit their books to make sure that they do have the dollar backing for the amount of cryptocurrency they're printing? That's the real question. And as you can see, USDT has been put through the ringer, has been scrutinized quite a bit. They have been uh, looked at by the New York Attorney General. So the more eyes that are going to be on these cryptocurrencies, the more likely they're going to be backed one-to-one. And here's my personal opinion on this. I think that most of these stable coins are operating exactly how they're supposed to be operating. If you see tweets from, say, Sam Brinkman-Fried, who is the founder and owner and CEO of FTX Exchange, 
he put out a tweet. He says, look, I use USDT and exchange USDT for dollars all the time. I use it as liquidity for my exchange and for OTC buys and sells. So you see that USDT and other stable coins are operating as they're supposed to. I personally believe that they're operating exactly how they're supposed to be operating. However, I would personally look at the ones that are most transparent and that they have third-party auditors coming in to check the reserves. Thank you very much for this question. I hope that answers it. The second question I have coming from Sebastian. Sebastian writes, I'm in Canada and BitBuy is one of the most recommended here. However, I know a lot of people in Canada using Coinbase. Why would the country be an issue if cryptocurrency is meant for the people all over the world? That's a great question. Well, we have to take this in two parts. One is the exchange and one is say, let's use Bitcoin for an example. We have the same thing in the US. An exchange has to follow the rules of the country or the United States case, the state. Some states have different rules for the exchange to operate there. And those could be KYC AML laws. Those can be just banking laws. Those could be anything that the state has in place that could make it either difficult or illegal for an exchange to operate there. It's also possible that it's legal to operate the exchange there. They just have a lot more regulations. And for some states or countries, the cost is just too high to set up there. So the exchange just says, ah, it's just not worth it. So I'm not too sure about the laws in Canada or what exchanges are operating there and why they do or why they don't. But I know that Binance.us for but I know Binance.us here in the United States, for example, are in, I think it's like 45 states, but five other ones they're still working on. And those are just regulations and again, going through the red tape and the bureaucracy and so on and so forth until they get established. And I think eventually they will be in all 50 states. It's just will take some time. But that goes to your second question about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin being used all over the world. Well, we have to separate Bitcoin and what it's good for and what it does is, you know, it's a cryptocurrency that can be sent anywhere in the world and it can't be stopped. But what governments can do is stop the on and off ramps for exchanging their government backed fiat currency for cryptocurrency. They basically just shut down the ways for you to buy and sell. So this isn't a cryptocurrency question that you're asking. It's a business question. The country, the state, they don't want to have that business set up there or some certain companies don't want to set up the business there. But Bitcoin still can be sent anywhere in the world to anyone. If you want to buy Bitcoin, you can go to local Bitcoins, get somebody to come to your house, <laughs> you give them 100 Canadian dollars, and they send you $100 worth of Bitcoin. And then with that $100 of Bitcoin that you have in your wallet, you can send that $100 of Bitcoin to anybody in the world. The thing is, is will they be able to exchange it and buy some other altcoins, or would they be able to cash out to the local fiat currency? That's the question. But Bitcoin is being sent everywhere and is unstoppable. I hope that answers your question. And actually, I think this question goes with Marion Perez's question about having Binance.us in Texas. Again, this is all about regulations. It's about red tape. It's about the states and their laws. And Binance.us is currently not available in Connecticut, Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, New York, Texas, and Vermont. But I know they're working on it. This is an interesting question. Crypto Moon asks, since fiat money is devaluing and crypto are poised to replace that system, why always compare or talk about cryptocurrencies in terms of US dollars? I personally only care about their BTC value. Why? Because if crypto are indeed poised to replace the current financial system, then I don't care about their fiat value. What I do care though is their price in BTC value because that could be the next reference if we succeed in the narrative. Thank you very much for this question. And I think that's an interesting question. And my answer to this question is that, well, there's two answers. The first one is not everybody wants that purpose of just BTC. 
or a cryptocurrency. Some people think that it's a store of value and they want to work with the current financial system. Some people are using this as trading. Some people are using this as strictly speculative investments and they want that U.S. dollar. So, so they're looking at it as a U.S. dollar worth or value and they don't care about the BTC price for the most part. But they might have some BTC for a store of value or the digital gold, but maybe they don't want it for the purpose of the new financial future all in Bitcoin. The second one is, even if you are of the idea that you want Bitcoin to be the new financial system of the future, you still have to have a reference of what it's worth in real goods and services. And a very easy way to do that right now is to compare it to what goods and services are priced by. And that's the fiat systems of certain countries. So if I said, oh, how much Bitcoin is a candy bar worth? Well, there's no way to actually tell if it's one Satoshi or two Satoshi, if that Satoshi is not pegged to something that we already have a reference to, to make that value. A candy bar is, let's say, a dollar. And how many Satoshi is a dollar? Well, a candy bar is now that many Satoshi. So I think the US dollar is a very important reference to the buying power of Bitcoin. It's necessary. And actually, I think there's a third part to this. If Bitcoin does become the, say, global measuring stick of all goods and services, and everything is stacked up in Satoshis, then I think that that's very far down the line. Uh, I mean, not even 10 years or 20 years. We're talking about hundreds of years. Um, and I also actually think if that happens, it's going to be a very turbulent road to get there. It's not going to be pretty. So those are my reasons for comparing Bitcoin price to the dollar, not just everything to Bitcoin. I just don't think it's possible. We also need a reference. It's not everybody's goal to have the Bitcoin standard globally or worldwide or even US-wide. And I think that it's not anytime in the near future. And if it does become the standard, everything's priced in Satoshis, the road to getting there is going to be very hard. Very, very hard. And this last question comes from Norway, from Mie Amy. And the question is, what to do with Norway? <laughs> That's a good question. How can I explain to my friends as Norwegians to buy Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the future? How do we get the rich and happy countries to join in? It's easy to convince people in China and India, but getting my 69-year-old man to invest in the super risky internet money with no insurance whatsoever, that's another thing. Any thoughts? And maybe your listeners have a suggestion or opinion. Listeners, if you have a suggestion or opinion, email me, MatthewAaron at Decrypt.co. But here's my opinion on this. Many years ago, I had a podcast with a professional baseball player, and that professional baseball player was from the United States, born and raised, but his teammates were all from like Central America, South America, or the Caribbean. And he would tell me these stories of, well, they didn't have any driver's license. And he would tell me the stories of taking his teammates to Western Union to send money abroad, to send money back over to their home countries, to their family. And he would tell me the stories of going to Western Union or these other companies that would send remittance back and how much they would charge. The other problem with these countries is that there is a middleman or you have to send it from one location of Western Union to another location in their home countries. And the person who might own the Western Union or these other remittance branches in these countries could be corrupt, forge documents, and then steal the money. And you have to go through this whole process of try to prove that you had money there and that they stole it or somebody stole it. <laughs> and it, it was so dangerous to send money back to these countries. And it was also very costly. And Bitcoin solved that problem. Also, we know about like Venezuela and Argentina and Zimbabwe when it comes to the inflation. And, you know, as a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, this also solves that. So, so what I'm trying to say is that Bitcoin has different levels of use cases. And for a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash or a system outside of a system, it might be good for certain countries to engage in that. Zimbabwe, Argentina, 
Venezuela. And they are going to adopt it because the need is there. The incentive is there. Now, when it comes to other countries, say America, well, America's going through a lot of stimulus packages where the government is printing a lot of money and everybody's worried about inflation and devaluing the dollar. Well, that opens up the ideas of how to protect our wealth, how to protect our investments, how to protect our U.S. dollar. So a lot of people are moving it into the stock market or assets like real estate or gold and now sometime Bitcoin. So that's another use case of it. When it comes to Norway, maybe the need or the necessity is not there. It is speculative. It is something that is not incentivized. It's something that you don't need in Norway right now. And you have to be one of the people that are thinking of maybe a different kind of financial system or future or into like maybe future applications for the use of blockchain or the different kind of evolution of money. And you're just embracing Bitcoin or cryptocurrency just for ideological purposes. And which is okay, but if somebody doesn't believe that and they have no use case or incentive to use Bitcoin or care about blockchain, then maybe they just don't. So would I wanna convince somebody that has no practical purposes that Bitcoin is the future? No, I think that's something that they'll have to embrace themselves. I, I honestly don't have a good answer for you here to how to convince people. I don't want to convince people. I want people to see that, that this might be something that is useful for them. And in countries like Venezuela or Zimbabwe or Argentina, it is useful for them. So they're using it. In places like the United States, we are wondering what's happening with the printing of a lot of money right now. It might be useful for us. In a place like Norway, maybe it's not. I mean, I don't see much use for a beach resort in Norway. However, Hawaii has a lot of use for a beach resort. I mean, some places just have uses for some things and some places don't. And that's okay. Thanks, everyone, for the listener questions. If you like the listener questions, please send me an email with more questions. Matthew Aaron at Decrypt.co. Every Friday, I'll answer listener questions until there are no more. And everybody says, just stop doing this, please. Matthew Aaron at Decrypt.co. And now let's get into this conversation with Peter Morick, head of public affairs of Parity Technology, who's going to give us a one-on-one on Polkadot and some Polkadot news updates. I'm doing fine. How are you today? I am excellent. You know why I'm very excellent? Because now I finally get to know what Polkadot is. What is this thing, Polkadot? Can you give me a one-on-one, please? Sure thing. So Polkadot is a sharded multi-chain protocol. I know that's a lot of blockchain jargon to start, but I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with Ethereum 2.0 and potentially familiar with Dr. Gavin Wood, one of the co-founders and the original CTO of Ethereum. Um, And there was a bit of divergence, let's say, between sort of his vision for what Ethereum 2.0, the sharded, scalable version of Ethereum Ethereum should look like, and Vitalik's vision. Um, So there came a time somewhere in 2015-ish where it didn't seem like the development work on Ethereum 2 was going to start very soon. And Gav and his core development team that started out building Ethereum decided to uh, uh, introduce Polkadot, which was hopefully going to uh, fill some of the gaps that Ethereum 2 wasn't going to be so great at and also provide this interoperability uh, framework between blockchains. So a lot of people who are potentially familiar with Polkadot from like 2017 automatically think of it as like a communication protocol, like an interoperability protocol between blockchains. Absolutely still one of the core uh, value propositions of Polkadot, bridges to other chains, high connectivity between chains. But now uh, it's evolved past that to really be this launch pad for this next generation of layer one uh, parachains. So it's a, a sharded protocol like Ethereum 2 will be many blockchains connected to a central uh, sort of coordinating chain. It's called the relay chain on Polkadot. But the key differentiator for, for Polkadot is that a development team, a project, a community can own its own shard and customize it to its use case 
uh, build your own layer one and then just connect it to Polkadot in order to drive security. Um, whereas something in like an Ethereum 2 uh, environment, which has a similar architecture, um, everyone's sort of locked into building within one development environment, which is a sort of basic smart contracting um, environment inside the EVM. So I know if there's a 101 listener just right now, their head is spinning. Let me just get, break down a couple different uh, terms that you put in there. So maybe they can go back and go, okay, that's what that means. Sharding. Yes. The learning curve with Polkadot is steep. So sharding is a scalability technique that's it's common in databases, basically splits the data in your database across many smaller instances that can communicate with each other, allowing you to store more data, allowing you in the case of a blockchain to push more throughput through that consensus mechanism. So basically it's the ability to separate, shard, parallelize transaction throughput on a, on a blockchain. Um, and that's why we call these layer one blockchains connected to Polkadot parachains, because you're basically parallelizing the work. Okay. So I'm going to summarize that in, 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 in dumb speak, lots of data split it up into parts so we can handle it a lot more efficiently. Yeah, like Ethereum one is like running your computer with one gigabyte of RAM. Polkadot <laughs> is like running a 32 gigabyte computer, right? You have 32 cores to 32 separate instances for you to push a computation through. Perfect. That's basically sharding. Perfect. Layer one, layer two. What is that? What's the difference between layer one and layer layer two? So layer one blockchains are things like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash. It's basically a single state machine. The in Bitcoin, it's a very simple. UTXO model, you send me a Bitcoin, now you have a Bitcoin, I don't have the Bitcoin. With Ethereum, it introduced uh, a, a little bit more of a complex virtual machine, the EVM, which is the sort of the layer one protocol within, uh, within Ethereum. In Polkadot, you're going to have many, many, many layer ones connected to each other. And we actually talk about Polkadot as a layer zero protocol in that it doesn't have a state machine like a smart contract environment or a UTXO built in. It really doesn't do anything except connect and provide security for the chains that are connected to it. Um, and layer twos are, are, are sort of additional scalability mechanisms that many people are familiar with, either in Bitcoin, something like Lightning or uh, an Ethereum like sidechains. They still exist for Polkadot parachains, basically allows you to offload additional work to uh, a, a, another sort of uh, a workflow. So like, let's say you have want to connect a hard drive to your computer to store extra data, that would be like what a side chain would be to a layer one. So if I was going to summarize this, that layer one is actually pretty much a, a subjective or arbitrary word, depending on what blockchain you're using. And that just means basically your base layer of how it works. Now, layer two is the things you're going to add to it to make it work either better or change the protocol altogether. What, was that, is that okay? Yeah. Polkadot is sitting at the number six market cap at around $35 right now or $35 billion market cap. What makes it so special and why did it move up the ring so quick? Uh, well, I can't comment too much on price, but generally speaking, uh, Polkadot has been a highly anticipated project in the space for quite a number of years. Um, uh, since it was announced or since, since Gav uh, introduced the Polkadot paper about, I guess it's five years ago now, um, the, the project was all, always highly anticipated considering him and his team's work on Ethereum and the cr critical need to have a uh, high security, uh, highly scalable protocol that will allow these blockchains to work together rather than against each other. And I think that people really do understand that that core 
uh, functionality that that interoperability that Polkadot is bringing to the space is going to create an environment where all of these networks can run uh, in a more connected manner versus today they're they're generally running in in, in silos on their own. So I, I think the the general vision of this anti-maximalism more is better for everyone I think is really um, well understood by those who engage in this industry. You know, Binance Smart Chain is another one that like went through the ranks really quick and is, you know, catching a lot of traction as well. What's the differentiation between, say, a Binance Smart Chain and a Polkadot? Yeah, I would say uh, Polkadot is certainly more like a revolution. Um, Binance Smart Chain is is more or less a copy of Ethereum with fewer nodes so that you can push through more transactions. So it's fairly opportunistic um, efforts to to gain market share from Ethereum because it is having so many so much con- so many congestion issues and, and people are rightfully have difficulty uh, uh, you know paying paying high gas fees for fairly small transactions. So I think that you know it's a it's an interesting uh, go to market to 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 uh, gain users. Um, but the, I would question the decentralization of the network and the number of nodes, um, uh, on, on Binance Smart Chain and, and Polkadot is really focused in the fully open permissionless, uh, space in, in also like introducing again, a revolutionary architecture. Um, whereas, you know, Binance Smart Chain could very easily be a parachain on Polkadot. It's not really offering this new paradigm for developers to build and launch their own layer one protocols. But obviously, I'm not taking one side or the other. You are speaking as a bias with the bias. a little bit. Yes, I would. Okay. I would say. But again, like there's these core principles that going back to Bitcoin, going back to the Satoshi white paper, that like decentralization is sort of the means to the end that we are uh, sort of sharing in terms of, you know, providing a democratized financial and web infrastructure for everyone. um, And sort of shortcutting the decentralization aspect is likely to be sort of troublesome to, to many in the space. Polkadot has a lot of news coming out in the or will be coming out in the past couple of days. Cash Chain, Ledger Live, Berkeley. Can you just run through some of this recent news for us? Sure. Yeah, it's been a big week. Um, so the, the first thing that that uh, came up earlier this week was uh, the team behind Compound on Ethereum uh, has been talking for a while about launching their own, basically their own layer one protocol. Um, and yeah, that news came out on Monday that they're using Substrate, the blockchain building framework that Parity Technologies, the company that I work for, developed to use to build Polkadot, um, is using that to build a, uh, a solo chain um, and really sort of own their own layer one, be able to make those economic decisions for their ecosystem from the ground up. So it was obviously very exciting news for everyone involved in the Substrate and Polkadot uh, ecosystems. Um, other, uh, other other good things that happened very much more recently this week um, is that Substrate, that blockchain building framework that I mentioned is is being um, adopted and worked into the curriculum with uh, blockchain at Berkeley. So one of the top uh, sort of developer feeder schools into Silicon Valley and more broadly into the blockchain space is really diving in and getting committed to teaching uh, Substrate to their students. It's a a, a really positive sign that um, 
substrate is as strong and robust and uh, uh, long lasting a developer framework as we've uh, made it out to be and put a lot of that work into it. So good, good to see um, that that students are going to be able to use it and then use it to build projects, which is really, really exciting. And then yeah, um, Polkadot was integrated on Ledger Live, I think that was announced today. So it'll be a lot easier for uh, people who are used to using ledgers to, to store and secure their crypto to actually um, stake and participate in, in Polkadot through the app now, which is, which is obviously exciting to get more folks involved. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. And last question uh, before I ask this last question, obviously, thank you very much for your time. But what is the relationship between Parity and Polkadot? So Parity is like a core software development company. So we are um, primarily uh, Rust and WebAssembly developers. I'm not a developer, but I uh, help communicate what the developers are working on. Um, so we're contracted by the Web3 Foundation to deliver uh, some of these core Polkadot technologies. Um, so, you know, we bring a wealth of experience from uh, building and launching Ethereum. Uh, obviously, all, all of Gav and his core team's work has been sort of like now moved into parity. Um, and we're, we're a dev shop for hire um, in, a, in a lot of regards, but primarily focused on building out the Polkadot and Kusama ecosystems. Um, Polkadot is a network I, I can't speak on Polkadot's behalf, but I can uh, talk about all the cool stuff we're doing to help support this this global network. So, you know, we have hundreds of validators at this point, increasing up to a thousand um, progressively over time. Um, but, you know, tens of thousands of different stakeholders, teams, projects, building a, a really global decentralized network. So excited to see where it's going to go in the next couple of years. I'm man, Peter Morick, head of public affairs at Parity Technology. Thank you very much for coming on this show and sharing all this with us. Thank you very much, Matthew. And another news. In a live stream with our editor-in-chief, Dan Roberts, Tim Draper says Apple might be the next one to buy Bitcoin. And Apple, uh, you know, they, they want everybody to go on Apple Pay. Well, I think they're going to eventually say, well, let, we should accept uh, Bitcoin and Apple Pay. Decrypt's editor-in-chief is skeptical that Apple will jump into the Bitcoin game, accept Bitcoin, or purchase Bitcoin as a hodl. But Tim Draper is bullish. We're just going to have to wait and see. The investing public right now is worried, and the professional investors are worried that the Fed is behind the curve, that the amount of stimulus envisioned is perhaps greater than which would be helpful over the next year or two of the economy. This is a quote from George Bell, CEO of Prudential Securities, where he says Bitcoin is an attractive part of almost any portfolio. This is another Wall Street veteran that's advocating for cryptocurrencies to be added to portfolios, even if it's small amounts. More bullish news stacked on more bullish news stacked on more bullish news. And the UK customers are saying bye-bye to Bybit because they're ending trading for their customers in the UK. Crypto derivatives exchange Bybit will stop serving UK clients on March 31st. It said in an announcement this morning. The exchange cited new regulations for cryptocurrency-based derivatives as the reason behind the move. If you're a UK customer and you're using Bybit, you might want to check on this. See what that means. What does it mean by stop on March 31st? What does it mean to any hodlings you have? What does it mean to your account? What does it mean to your transactions? What it means to maybe any limit or buy orders you have? Just check that out. Dig deep. Don't get caught. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Aaron. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. It helps us stay visible and it helps people have confidence to click on this show and take the plunge. I'll be back tomorrow for the weekend update. Until then, happy hodling, everyone. <laughs>